Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. And I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? Doing pretty good. So yeah. the media is abuzz with all things Kyle Rittenhouse. A buzz. Um, wow. A buzz. Um, yeah, they, I think that's they fair are. To say. I, I just <laughs> forwarded a very lengthy New York Times article to everybody in our firm. Um, <laughs> yes, that's, that's the article that's actually, it's in the digital edition right now, but it's going to be in the magazine on uh, tomorrow on Sunday. Yes. And you're right. It's a, it's many, many pages long and it goes into all kinds of aspects of the case. So, you know, a lot of it is editorial and commentary about how the way the rest of the nation views this case, but certainly big news. I mean, right here in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the world is watching. <clears throat> but, yeah, they are. And they're and they're looking for answers. And do you know who they turn to for some of those answers? Well, often it's somebody in our firm, you know. <laughs> it was you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. you. <clears throat> um, yes. It was ABC News and the New York Times uh, has reached out to me to provide commentary on this case, which I will be doing on an ongoing basis as the uh, trial commences. But I've already talked to both of those. Or they reached out to me. I didn't call them up and say, hey, you guys want to know about the Rittenhouse case? Um, <laughs> I did. And it's weird. Nobody wanted to talk to me. So, uh, <laughs> so you tried that. Then apparently they just reverse engineered. And they go, oh, we'll, we'll talk to a bear then. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. We'll talk to him. So, um, yeah, I, I spent earlier in the week, I spent about an hour with ABC and then another hour with New York Times. And um and by the way, the article that is going to appear on Sunday does is not by the staff writer that I talked to. So there's, you know, there's more out there, you know, as far as what's going on. But they kind of have me on board to provide uh, ongoing, uh, you know, support questions they have. So, you know, this well, actually the- is this ca- case is like a law school exam on self-defense. I mean, it's got well, it's 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 le- the legal aspects, which I know you're going to get into are fascinating uh, based on the facts that we have here, but it's also this enormous political and kind of cultural um, movements, the wrong word, but um, it's like an iconic, an epic moment in Mm -hmm. time, an an event that just galvanizes people um, and not just law geeks about, you know, what are the elements of self-defense or what are the judges rulings mean, but, you know, just like, um, how police react to white people versus black people, how, um, you know, uh, protesters are viewed. Uh, they're called rioters, you know, that sort of, you know, this and the president of the United States getting involved in it. The, uh, you know, every group you can imagine, gun control, gun rights, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, you know, militias, they're all staking the claim in this case they're planting their flag in kenosha wisconsin mm-hmm. <laughs> for this case that's a really good point because you know i i've been trying to look at this case from a purely legal perspective but people i talk to and i, and I mean including lawyers not just uh you know people that happen to know a little bit about the case but people that know a lot about the case or have taken the time to research the issues of the case uh you know it's very difficult for people to uh, decide well, and you shouldn't decide, you shouldn't prejudge this case. I'll, you know, obviously, you you would need to be on the jury, and you would need to hear all the evidence. 
Now, because this has attracted so much media attention, there has been a lot of coverage of pretty much every ruling that Bruce Schrader makes in the process of, you know, conducting this trial. Also, all the videos, which are the primary evidence, yeah, are they're out there. public. Yes, and they've been, I've viewed them and, and so on, but <clears throat> it's kind of fascinating. I mean, there is a tendency for people to prejudge this case based on whether they have an admiration for or a detestation of, you know, Black Lives Matter. That seems to be a kind of a, a breaking point for people in their view. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of give you a flash forward here about where I think this is going and, you know, completely apolitical comment here, but I believe that under the circumstances with everything I've seen, that this is clearly a case of the self-defense privilege coming into play. I say that with many, many caveats, and that's what we'll talk about because there, you're, I can see this case going all over the place. You're saying um, that you're saying that I'm just want to be clear about what you're proclaiming. You're saying that under the facts, as you know them, and again, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they'll be slightly different at trial, but um, in the videos that you've seen mm-hmm. that you think that if you were a juror, you would find that he justifiably used self-defense or are you not, or are you saying maybe as an objective juror or a conservative juror in Kenosha County, that that was, that's a likelihood or what, just clarify what, well, what it is. You, you, you kind of hit both reasons. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I think from what I've seen, you know, the old saying a picture is worth a thousand words, a video is worth a million. So, um, when you watch the video, I can't, I've watched, especially the second video, which is when he's running down the street after the first shooting has already occurred. It, it, it just feels like self-defense. I mean, I don't know how the prosecution is going to overcome that. Now, again, I say that, but then there's many different ways that you can characterize the facts of this case. Now, let's talk about self-defense because it's an incredibly complicated uh, set of law and uh, laws and the way that the instructions work and the overlapping of uh, potential lesser included offenses and all these other things. I want you to get into that, and then I want to play devil's advocate. But go oh, ahead. sure. Okay. Yeah, please do. Um, but uh, I wanted to start kind of just so in case people aren't familiar with this, I can, I can go to the source here. I have the criminal complaint in front of me, and some have <laughs> alleged that the DA's office more or less uh, wrote in a roadmap for the defense. In I, the I have alleged that <laughs> among <laughs> so, others. So first, so first on that point, I want to talk about something that most people, in fact, people that aren't experienced defense lawyers might not know this either. But in a case like this, the prosecution is going to draft a criminal complaint very, very carefully. For And one of the reasons that they're going to take extra care in this is that if they are in possession of any evidence that could arguably fall under what's called a, a Frank's man challenge based on Delaware versus Frank's and uh, state versus man. They could be accused of leaving information out that could have affected a probable cause determination. So when people are like, Hey, they put all this stuff in there that basically tells the defense how to go about mounting a self-defense claim. I think that a smart prosecutor is going to include information along those lines rather than hide it. If I could, if I could just on a legal point here, 
I'm not sure, and I mean that, I'm not sure, that you can use the Frank's man analysis, which is, you know, either lying or recklessly leaving something out of uh, something that's going to make a probable cause determination. I'm not sure you can use that in a criminal complaint. I think you can use that in a search warrant, obviously. Um, but, but so yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. You, I, I don't. Think I you, have I don't done it before, but 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 you are making a distinction that I think is important here. Let's not forget that self-defense is an affirmative defense, and at a probable cause hearing, whether it be you know a Riverside hearing or something where they're determining someone's custody status, or if it is for the purposes of a preliminary hearing, judges don't consider affirmative defenses. So, I mean, on the one hand, there's no absolute requirement that the state mm-hmm. include things that aren't directly related to veracity. But yes, the Frank's man line of cases can and has applied to the information that's contained in a criminal complaint. And I've mounted that challenge before. So putting that aside, um, it has been suggested that, you know, <laughs> the way the way that the story goes, it, you know, one reads it and they're thinking automatically like, oh, wait a minute, self-defense. Um, and, and that might be uh, a matter of uh, draft draftsmanship or it could be, you know, how the information made it in the complaint and who put it there. It's, you know, like I said, that in this case, I think they were very careful, but it was also because I know that the reports themselves uh, in, you know, included this information. So, you know, it's usually just a copying of the most uh, pertinent portions of the report. So anyway, um, we have, you know, numerous counts that kind of all talk about the same thing with different types of victims. There is a count of first degree reckless homicide by using a dangerous weapon, first degree recklessly endangering safety by use of a dangerous weapon, first degree intentional homicide, by using a dangerous weapon, attempted first-degree intentional homicide, using a dangerous weapon, first-degree recklessly endangering safety by use of a dangerous weapon, and possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18. They added also, on top of this, an ordinance violation that related to his, um, to the the weapon in some way, but no one's really talked about that. So we're going to take a break right now. When we come back, we'll dive right in. More. And we're back with more legal defense. And basically this week, Kyle Rittenhouse, all t- all the time, all, <laughs> the whole show, uh, because really, when you break this case down, it, it, is, it is a window into the whole world of criminal defense and the whole world of um, criminal law uh, and the... The comp- not to, they're not complicated to us, but the complicated rules to the public about what evidence comes in, what kind of defenses right. are allowed, um, how do you handle things like massive publicity? How do you handle, you know, um, uh, for example, one of the court's rulings about um, you, prosecutors um, can't call uh, the dead people victims? Yeah, you know. Well, I'll- I want to jump into that because um, that's really been hot news this week. And that's kind of one of the things that everyone is is really uh, giving a lot of attention to. I just wanted to comment briefly. I did look up the other, um, you know, forfeiture charge that he that he's facing. And that one is the failure to comply with an emergency management order of a state or local government. In other words, curfew. 
So we all remember <laughs> that there was an eight o'clock PM curfew in place because well, of- that's the real nub of it. Because you know, yeah. once you violate a curfew, that's life imprisonment. I don't all know, bets are of, off. A lot yeah. of people don't know that. <laughs> Life All right. Uh, yeah. So, yes, you you touched on something that kind of uh, lit like a giant firecracker across the country when the judge ruled that uh, the prosecutor, uh, Thomas Binger, is not allowed to refer to the dead people here as victims or, or anybody that got shot as victims. Yet the defense may call them looters arsonists and what was the other thing um rioters yeah so but let me but break that down because i believe that's being- i believe I, I believe he can only say that in closing if right. indeed the evidence shows that so there's just a distinction there right right and i was just going to get to that because the, they're really they're two different issues and for people to say oh they can't be victims of course they're victims bad they're dead you know versus these uh subjective qualifications so schrader what he was doing is that he was following the the you know the the careful route when it comes to the use of this word victim and he was saying hey if the defense is going to be if you think you can prove that your client knew these people to be looters arsonists you know rioters and he can speak from his own personal perspective. In other words, kind of daunting them to call him to the stand if <laughs> if he's going to get on there and say, I know, I, you know, from his perspective, this is what he knew them to be. Um, and, and really, they're two different issues. It is uh, in, in argument, in closing argument, of course, the judge warns the jury that these are only comments of the attorneys and they're not, it's not evidence and shouldn't be considered as evidence. And when you put a spin on something such as look, ladies and gentlemen, these were looters and rioters and arsonists, you know, that's part of your argument that goes into that. Now the word victim has an entirely different, you know, first of all, history as well as um, connotations. And this is something that has been an ongoing issue for years and years and years and years. And uh, I always file either file a formal motion or ask the judge to prevent the prosecution from using that word during the case in chief. And it's very simple. Uh, no one uh, is a victim of a crime unless the crime has been committed. And then in order to get there from point A to point B, the jury has to make factual findings that demonstrate the crime did, in fact, occur. So. so I could just if I could just interject. Um, <clears throat> this is something I think is hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. Um, but Marcy's law has complicated things greatly. Of course, right. we've had, long had for decades we've had a victims' rights statute, Chapter Nine Fifty. If you want to look it up, um, but with the with the advent of Marcy's law which basically just repeats that, except now it's in the Constitution of Wisconsin. Uh, the judges seemed, a lot of judges, not, not Bruce Schrader, but a lot of judges seem inclined to allow um, the reference to victims. For example, in criminal complaints, they have victim A, victim B, witness A, witness B, right? Because, you know, it's all confidentiality. Um, but they always use the word victim. Mm-hmm. And I even spoke with a friend of mine who is a judge 
um, and who I will say is a very, very, very progressive person. And I was told that um, he or she would be allowing um, people to call them victims. You could say they, right? They. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's singular, but anyway. Um, <laughs> um, but um, that uh, they would be allowing, you know, uh, the reference to the word victims, and, although they would um, also allow a complaint to say alleged victim. But I always have maintained it should be a complaining witness because that's what you are. You're a witness until there's a conviction. If there's a conviction, then you are legally transformed into a victim, quote unquote. Right. But before right, that right. point, the presumption of innocence is there. And, um, you know, which, 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 by the way, this really annoys me. I'm sure it annoys you is that while a case is pending, DA's offices all over the state are filing like e-filing, like making part of the public record, victim witness statements or victim mm-hmm. uh, impact statements, mm-hmm. um, which of course are not supposed to be there because we have a presumption of innocence. Right. Or at least I, well, I, I often like to get those victim impact statements ahead of time because <laughs> they sometimes have some juicy stuff in them. But um, yeah, I always make this argument too, that the thing about the word victim, it has, it's packed with emotion and, you know, it implies sympathy, right? That if someone's a victim or if they've been victimized, you know, it means the person who uses that term is conveying the the misery or the harm that the person's. That's that's how that term is used in in everyday language. Now, there's I think there's been a tendency over the years just to automatically refer to somebody who has had a crime committed upon them, uh, him or her as as a victim because i think we've kind of gone in that direction now how many times have you had a case where you've got you know a spouse who's in court that says hey i i didn't get hurt nothing happened i want this all to go away and they're like nope you're a victim and (laughs) sorry (laughs) we don't care what you want because marcy's law says we have to consider it which also means we have to protect you more than you know how to protect yes. yourself. Yes, so, you are apparently <laughs> ill-informed about your own safety. Yes. So, I mean, <laughs> even to the extent, I know that George Takei was all up in arms about this earlier in the week, about how could a judge rule that you can, the defense can say all these loaded terms and conclusory subjective characterizations of the dead people, but the prosecution can't even call them victims. How are they not victims? They're dead. You know, I've heard that. Right. But again, we're talking about that word means a lot of different things. It seems like a very simple word. It seems like one that, yeah, you know what it means, but it depends on how you're using it, what the context is. So the problem is it's very, very simple. If the prosecution comes marching into court and just constantly refers to so-and-so as a victim, that means that they are dead because of a crime. Who's charged with the crime? This dude, the dude sitting at the chair that says defendant right in front of it, you know? So if, uh, <laughs> now, now I know judge Schrader and, he um I, I, none of this has surprised me and it's not because of politics and it's not because he has a disdain for the DA's office i mean he does that's no there's no doubt about that but he's the kind of judge that when and i i've had been in front of many of these i know you have too but there's that kind of judge that can see that if it's a tie 
between the defense and the prosecution in his mind. Like, well, he can, I can see that point. I can see this point. He, he bends towards the constitutional rights of the defendant. If in his mind, it's a, it's toss up. I've seen him say I think that. that. I think that's basically true. Yeah. And, that's and that's because, Hey, a lot of people might not realize this, but judges aren't just looking to do the right thing. They're also trying to protect their appellate record. And if you're going to side with the defense on that issue, you're, you know, you're basically preventing an appeal of this case on some issue that you've basically found in favor of the defense, because, you know, it is more significant for the defense than it is the prosecution. The prosecution is, does not have a right to a level playing field, by the way. So I've heard commentators this week saying that, and that is never true. The proof it's proof beyond reasonable doubt at all times. There's a temporary shift in terms of the burden of production in a case like this, but it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt at all times from start to finish time for another break, but we'll continue this little jaunt through legal <laughs> defense when we get back. And we are back uh, on a little jaunt through the world of the Rittenhouse case. Oh, uh, Rittenhouse, that sound like a, like a fancy estate in England. Sounds you know? like you're a uh, Irish storyteller in a bar. Yeah. Having a pint no, of Guinness. no children, let me sit you down and tell you about the bad times. <laughs> All right. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit more about rulings the judge has made. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, especially in the past few months leading up to the trial, he's doing his best to keep this as much like a normal trial as possible. And he said over and over again, I'm not going to let this turn into a case about politics or political views. This is going to be a case about the facts. Well, good. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad he's thinking that. You know what? And he's, you know what? he's a, been around long enough. Go ahead. A tip, a tip of the hat to, to judge Schrader who, can be, you know, kind of testy at times um, on certain issues with certain people. Uh, but you always get the impression that what you just said mm-hmm. is is really his goal. He's like trying to – I think he was the right judge for this case in the sense that you can have high confidence that he's not allowing the grandstanding that you would expect in a case like this. And there has been some that he can't stop. Uh, For example, when, you know, it's it's, the record on the case is open to the public, but there's been fighting about whether Rittenhouse's address should be, you know, made part of the public record. There's been fighting about if there could be reference to, you know, these other acts, rulings and things like that. But the bottom line is like any case, anyone in the media can figure out that a motion has been filed. They can appear in open court with, uh, reporters and so on. So, you know, one of the things that was going on, this was a few months ago, two months ago, I think it was when leading up to the trial, the judge is really trying to make sure that this is not going to be a circus. This is not going to be something where people are going to mess around and try and, you know, take the upper hand by, uh, you know, flaunting about a bunch of facts that are unproven until they're proven. But the other thing about Schrader that I can say is that he's probably not, you know, he's undaunted by the fact that this is a, nas- a case of national attention. Um, after all, he was the judge in the Mark Jensen case. I don't know if you remember. That. Oh, I remember that case very, very well. Yes. So, I mean, he has some history dealing with things. And he's also been a judge for many, many years. So I think, 
he doesn't have any um, reservations about the fact that a lot of people, he's trying to make this like a normal case as much as possible. So one of the things that he mentioned, and this is one of the things that uh, ABC was, um, boy, I hope we're not getting into trouble here by mixing and matching our media sources here, but I don't know. Um, (laughs) I mean, we can talk about whatever we want, right? Um, But uh, one of the interesting things that ABC in particular, the questions they were asking me had to do with how on earth can you get a fair trial in Kenosha, Wisconsin, when everyone in the entire country is watching this case. So, you know, jurors that show up who live in Kenosha are going to be familiar with the case. You're not going to get a clean slate. And I, and I said, hold on. Same thing about um, Jeffrey Dahmer, or you could say the same thing about um, George Floyd um, or any number of high profile. I think people remember all the rigmarole around OJ Simpson and how in California, well, it's that was a, a very special, yeah. Yeah, and it's a different procedure for picking a jury anyway. But, um, th- and I pointed out that, you know, being completely free from exposure to the case is not the standard. What the standard is, you know, and I think it's a good rule that we follow here. Well, there's some parts about it I don't like, but the good part is that it's very basic. Can you be fair and impartial in spite of what you know? Can you put it out of your mind and pay attention to only the evidence that's presented here in court? That's the standard. And if you were to say, uh, if you know anything about this case or if you've drawn any conclusions, who has it? I mean, sure. But what the judge will be asking them to do is, okay, that's media accounts. You may have seen something or thought, Hey, that's very, you know, you need to put all that aside and start over because that's not evidence. And what we're about to do is look at evidence. So I'm going to, I'm going to suggest a possible uh, route that he could have taken, which he did not, which Mm -hmm. is not necessarily to grant a change of venue. In other words, move the whole trial to another County. Um, But rather, uh, and I did this on a case in a rural Wisconsin county, uh, which had a notorious murder, small county. So they brought in a county, they brought in a jury from a different county. Now, it wasn't something where it had national exposure, but it was a high publicity case. Mm -hmm. And and I think the, the reason I bring that up is because Yes. Okay. Now we have the internet. We have you know this constant flow of information, and so everybody's seen the videos, or at least presumably they have. But at the same time, if you live, like physically live in Kenosha County, (laughs) yes, you know when you physically live near the site of a huge epic event, you're going to feel that a lot more than somebody that lives five counties away or across. I agree. Or, you know, I mean, yeah, you might have still heard about it, but it's not as real to you as it is to somebody who lives physically there. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Well, okay. let me just circle back because that's a very good point that you raise. And although the judge is trying to keep the political or, you know, social affiliations out of this, isn't that going to be one of the first questions that I, as a lawyer, am going to want to ask whether I'm the prosecution or the defense to a potential juror? Did you support the protesting that occurred or did you believe that that was inappropriate, the fact that the protest was happening? Okay, because that's going to fall right along, you know, a political division right there. 
But isn't it kind of critical to know that? I mean, somebody kind of thought- it is critical to know that. And do you know? Do you know if they've submitted uh, questionnaires? I can't believe they didn't they, have a questionnaire. No, they they were there was a discussion about that, and the judge decided against it because he thinks and he might be right about this. He might not, but he thinks that it's just going to invite people to research the case more if they get this thing in the mail and they realize what it's all about. But I would say this. If you're on jury duty and you know that next week you're supposed to show up for a case in Kenosha County, I bet you know what this is all about. I mean, it's not, it's not like you're <laughs> I don't think it's a big in theory, you're supposed to show up. You mystery. know, you don't know what the case is about. You don't know the name of the case, you know, but they're like, hey, you're going to be on jury duty from, uh, you know, this date until who knows when, which is how he does it, by the way. He doesn't have scheduled. Try- he can give an estimate, but he always makes a point of saying you're here till you're done. It could be it could be three it could be three days it could be three weeks it could be three months but you're here you and, know um, maybe this goes back to his love of baseball where you know <laughs> you never really know when a game is going to finish I mean it could be the ninth inning but it might be the fifteenth who knows or like they say after the ninth inning it's free baseball right you get extra <laughs> um so. But again, another other rulings that the judges made. Okay, so let me just give you an example of how both sides have been posturing for the media. The best example I can give of what the defense was trying to do is they made a motion to do something that no way, no how, no matter what planet you've ever you come from, no one would ever allow this. But they wanted it out there so the media would catch it. So I'm going to contribute to that phenomenon right now, as a matter of fact, by perpetuating something that's not coming into evidence. I hope that's okay. But uh, the defense figured out that one of the uh, complaining witnesses, who isn't complaining anymore um, because they're dead, uh, is a convicted child sex offender. Uh, The way they worded it was a, a convicted pedophile. Okay. Which, which is a word that's actually is used in the um, uh, psych- psychological assessment parlance, but we don't have like a crime of pedophilia. It's just it's like a nasty word that uh, gets used, much like the word rape. I mean, there is no such thing legally in Wisconsin as that. But if you want to make it sound worse, you use so that word. Okay? What you're saying is the defense brought a motion to allow them to bring that in? Yes. Okay. So first of all, there's no way that, okay, listen to this. There's no way Rittenhouse would have known that. And if he did for some crazy reason, that would give him a motive to shoot the guy. So why, why are they why are they going down this path? They know the judge isn't going to grant this, but they know the media is watching and they want people out there that could end up being so jurors. Let me, let me propose something. Yeah. And that is that, um, that that is downright frivolous. Oh, absolutely. That is 100%. That is that in my opinion and I think you agree that a lawyer that that files something like that they know is mm-hmm. absolutely out of bounds. <laughs> um that, yes, that is like that is the tr- that is the law, but can't can't we convince ourselves of pretty much anything? Can't couldn't you just can't you see yourself as one of those lawyers? And we know we know them actually, and <laughs> saying to yourself, uh, you know, I, I know that's probably how the judge will rule, but I really think that I can fashion an argument here because 
you know, and then you kind of wing it. And then if, as long as you can come up with something. It would be the thinnest of arguments. And I know. Okay. And we got to take a break and we'll be right back. And we are back with more Kyle Rittenhouse. I mean, legal defense. Um, okay. <laughs> Paul, no. well, um, because it is a treasure trove of legal issues and fascination. Um, even if it's uh, a distressing pulling back of the curtain of our um, incredibly divided and perilous democracy. Right. Getting back to this frivolous motion that the defense made. Well, okay. You're just gonna like, we're just gonna walk past that dramatic, um, <laughs> the dramatic. Well, line dramatic. I drop. I'm not walking past it. Okay, I'm keeping right, that fine. drama going. Fine. Go back to the law. Go back to the law. It's a legal podcast. Yeah. So, yeah, as you said, entirely frivolous. How on earth can can a lawyer file that with a straight face? Let's not forget. I want to go a little deep here, but you know, uh, if you were to say, is there a political movement out there that especially detests, uh, you know, child sex, sex crimes. I mean, just thinking off the top of my head, doesn't that sound a bit like QAnon, right? Um, okay. So, you know, maybe that's something that they, they thought, Oh my God, we can't pass up this opportunity because that's how they're seeing the political divide occurring here. But uh, Hey, let's face it. The pro what the prosecution tried to do at the same time, and uh, this is equally as frivolous is that they wanted the judge to rule that they could get into the fact that uh, there were a group of white supremacists that were buying him beer. And I think it was beers. Uh, you know, he's underage in a bar and they're congratulating him and they're flashing him like what they say are proud boy signs and that they're that he knew the words to some sort of, you know, racist song or something and sang along with these guys. And so, okay. Now I, ca I can see where that would be slightly more relevant than what we were talking about with the, with the, you know, the person that has the conviction in the past, but what they need to do if they wanted to get into that is that they would need to stitch it together better, that, that he had an actual motive. And that means that they'd be going down the path of, he, you know, and here's how the argument goes. I mean, I can see this and I can understand why and how the, I can almost hear the prosecutor saying this right now. We're talking about somebody who's uh, underage and thereby, at least under these circumstances, was not permitted to possess a firearm. OK, uh, he, he's 17 years old. There's a riot going on up in Wisconsin. He decides that he's going to go, you know, at his tender age with an AR-15, mind you go up and help protect the property owners. Okay. Well, that sounds a little, he doesn't thick. know, but go ahead. He wanted to go play war is what he wanted to do. You know, yeah. he wanted to be in the thick of all this stuff, walking around with the, with an assault rifle is what he wanted to do. Now, is it fair to say that he wanted to shoot somebody? I don't think there's any evidence of that, but it, again, at the prosecution, I tried to make this argument that there's it no, gives there's no, motive. there's no evidence, but little doubt. Yeah, little doubt. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, right. That's it, this whole thing it involves speculation. So <clears throat> in terms of what his state of mind was. So then he gets up there and OK, now there is let's talk about recklessness. All right. Now, the prosecution's charged him with first degree intentional homicide. There's only one count of actual first degree intentional homicide, which means he, at the time that he pulled the trigger, he intended to kill. And this is uh, Anthony Huber. Yeah, the, and that's the first one, by the way. The, 
not the not the later correct um, correct yeah and that's where they, they may they may have a stronger argument relating to all that however even that you know he, he's a kid it's kind of, it ends up i think being unfortunate for him that he has this ar15 and this all partly goes into kind of like the recklessness maybe maybe it was reckless to begin with that he was even there maybe it was provocative that he had an ar15 well I think, visible I think you, to i think you nailed a huge issue which yeah. is his his provocation by um his actions just showing up the way he did for the reasons he was there um you know it was it was um uh i don't know almost cult like you yeah. know and and but i will say that there's a lot of people probably in Kenosha County that think it's not only just fine but they want to run for governor yeah i've heard that <laughs> he was old <laughs> so, enough to be president there are people that want to be president but yeah. okay and then, and then I, there's that vein of thought and i i totally understand that there are many people that think this way but there's the type of gun proponent or gun advocate or I guess second amendment advocate that wants to normalize the process of walking around with firearms out in the open and that there really shouldn't be anything wrong with you going anywhere, doing anything with a, you know, there's that theory, that theory. So why in a situation where, you know, you may in fact be able to deter others from committing crimes, would you not be allowed to, or, would it not be a good idea to show up with a gun? Well, again, you hit you you mentioned this um, provocation issue, and that actually is something that uh, some of the media folks have been paying attention to in the interviews that I've been giving. It changes the manner in which uh, one has either an obligation to attempt retreat or not, and this is fascinating how the law breaks it down into two different categories. If if so, first of all, I'll just go through the mechanics. If the defense fairly raises, that's the standard, fairly raises the issue of self-defense, it then becomes an issue and the prosecution is required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that self-defense was, n that the privilege does not apply in this situation. That's the basics, okay? So all that has to happen is that the defense has to convince the judge that the issue presents is presented by the state of the evidence. Boom. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Now, the problem is we have this provocation rule in Wisconsin. Oh, and by the way, if you're just talking about straight up, uh, the person was not a provoker, didn't provoke the disturbance, but was merely present and is part of a disturbance, um, there is no duty to retreat before you defend yourself. If, however, and this is kind of weird, if you are one who provokes the disturbance, and there's a lot of question about what that means, and it doesn't require physical contact, it doesn't require that you, you know, throw the first punch or anything like that. But if it can be argued that you were the provoker, well, guess what? You lose the self-defense privilege unless you can demonstrate that after that provocation that that brought forth the attack on you that you had you tried to retreat you must try to retreat or or stop the um engagement and you must equivocally unequivocally demonstrate that intent then you regain the privilege and you can kill the person so <laughs> you know you know it's so funny you're going through this because <laughs> if you like when i say you i mean like 
uh, lay people examine what we're really talking about here. It's not like dramatic, like a Hollywood movie. No. Um, It's, it's finely tuned or finely thinly sliced, I guess I should say on facts, like the slightest little thing can make one thing look provocative or one thing look, you know, defensive or mm-hmm. not, you know, the slightest little thing, you know, the movements, you know, and when you get into um, that sort of um, slicing and dicing, that makes trials really tough. Especially if your client has to testify, which, by the way, is something that I would like your opinion on about whether or not um Kyle Rittenhouse is going to testify because I would think at this point there would be little to be gained from a legal standpoint, from a legal standpoint for him to testify. However, uh, he seems to be a very political guy who's been captured by a very political class, and it may be that he wants to make a political statement. Well, that might be his undoing because I think it would be – from a tactical standpoint, I think it would be shocking if he took the stand in this particular case. Now, I know that there's that type of lawyer out there that believes you never put the defendant on the stand. And I don't believe that. I I have put my client on the stand many, many times. In fact, probably more than half the time I do that. But it has to be a specifically calculated decision. And it has to be is there some aspect of the case that only your client can provide? Now, normally, if you're talking about one's mental state, it does require someone to get on the stand and say what they were thinking. But here, think about it. You know, they call him to the stand, and if the theory is, well, he needs to say that he was in fear for his life, and he needs to say that he was in at risk of imminent, imminent death or great bodily harm, and, you know, and say, I did it out of self-defense. The jury's going to be like, duh, that's why you're here, right? We all know that. He doesn't even have to say it, for one thing. But mm-hmm. secondly, this is a case where I think all the surrounding facts say that make that same statement without him actually having to endure. Well, that's the, that's the point. I think a lot of people, well, we're going to run out of time here. But, yeah. you know, um, you don't put somebody on the stand to say something that you can prove otherwise. That you can right. prove by other means. And that's one of our constitutional protections is that, yeah. you know, an 18 year old kid. Now he's 18. Shouldn't have to do battle with uh, Thomas Binger, who went to law school and stuff, you know. Yeah. All right. It's all the time we have. So um, I think next time we broadcast, it'll still be in the midst of this trial. Unless we'll written out happens. too. Written <laughs> unless something happens. And we'll just give you an update on that stuff because it's kind of interesting. <laughs> so, all right. Tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5. WHBL, this has been Legal Offense with Kirk and John. Have a great great weekend.